0: Well, he called me and asked if we could have lunch. Uh, We'd been friends when we were single, although we had lost touch, and somehow he sought me out. Um, We sat down across the table at an Asian restaurant, and he got right to the point. He said, I hope, uh, I, I have some scary questions. He said, I've asked my wife about them, and she's just too freaked out to talk about it. A few months earlier, they had experienced a tragedy. They'd lost a newborn child, and it had rattled him. And worse, at the funeral, the pastor said something that deeply disturbed him. Consequently, his confidence in God was gone. He wondered whether God existed, and if he did, why he'd allow something so terrible. And the doubts were growing, and they were frightening. What he'd been told about God no longer seemed to make sense, and he felt stuck between two equally unattractive alternatives. A simplistic faith that wasn't holding up, a faith with ready responses but trite answers. And on the other hand, a secular world that was willing to listen to all the questions but didn't have any answers. His Christian friends told him just to believe, and while they didn't say it out loud, they implied to him that doubt was sin. He was uncertain what to believe, yet at the same time unwilling to give up on God. He asked me lots of questions, a few of which I had answers for and some I did not. We talked about alternative ways of looking at the questions that he had, that steered clear of some of the simplistic answers that he'd found so troubling. And over about a six-month period, we met repeatedly, and we talked, and I encouraged him not to give up, but at times wondered if he might. Gradually, he started to pull out of it. The answers seemed to help, but more importantly, his relationship with God took an interesting turn, a new direction, and in the process, his trust and confidence in God grew. Now, he's not in confidence anymore, or excuse me, in crisis anymore, but the doubts have never completely gone away. The certainty he once had has long ago disappeared, but it's been replaced by something much more resilient, by a quiet confidence in God. So what about doubt? My experience is that there are two kinds of people, those who believe and never doubt, and those who doubt and struggle to believe. The first group, the faith type, makes up about 90% of most churches. That's to you today, this sermon may actually frustrate you. You want to just say, stop overthinking things and believe. My goal for you today, if this is the category you fall into, is to help you understand, be sensitive, and even supportive of those who struggle with doubts. Now, you may have the spiritual gift of faith, but it may also be that you too someday may find yourself struggling with doubt. So don't settle for a shallow faith. A superficial faith is a vulnerable faith. Be willing to wrestle with questions, objections, and doubts that skeptics raise, even if they aren't your questions. Now, others of you are the reflective type. Now, often in churches, you're in the minority, maybe just 10%, although I will say from conversations here at City Church, I think the percentage here is a lot higher. You're the ones who struggle with doubt. Sometimes doubt comes after years of Confident faith. Something happens and then all of a sudden, you aren't so sure you really understand. You come across something that troubles you, difficulties appear in your life and suddenly that sense of certainty you once had has just faded away. It's not so easy anymore. Doubt, at least in part, has replaced faith. Why you wonder is it so easy for others to just believe? Maybe you now have questions you've never thought of before. What seemed once so simple now seems much more complicated. You may even have thought about walking out of a service during a sermon when a pastor says something that just seems so superficial and unsatisfying. You worry that your friends would be shocked if they knew what was really going on in your mind. Now, full disclosure, I am not, at least temperamentally, a doubter. I'm a thinker. So while I believe that Christian faith offers the best, most comprehensive explanation of reality that there is, I do believe that faith makes sense, that it's logically coherent, emotionally satisfying, and psychologically healthy, and that the teachings of Jesus speak to the deep longings of our souls, which is why we're in this series to begin with. That said, I am very sympathetic to those of you who struggle with doubt, who wrestle with whether or not to believe. Especially if you've been in churches where there are so many true believers that make it sound so easy, and they control the narrative. Now, just because you have doubts doesn't mean that you need to give up on faith. Because some of you are saying, I may struggle with these doubts, but I also don't want to give up on God, yet I'm not so sure quite what to believe. And that can be unsettling, especially if you're worried what others might think if you start saying your doubts out loud. Maybe they'll think poorly of you. Now, as I said a moment ago, I do believe that our faith is built on solid ground. So I'm not arguing for blind faith, but I also know how hard it can be to believe. There are, um, doubt can be a periodic reality of even the strongest of believers. In fact, some of the most famous Christians of all, including Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa, have struggled consistently throughout their lifetime with doubt. The writer Anne Lamont once said that life is like walking across a lake, jumping from one lily pad to another. Now some of you have been told that doubt is bad, that you, that's led you to ignore, suppress, or avoid talking about your doubts for, for fear of being looked at differently by others. Others some, can sometimes give us the impression that doubt is a sign of weakness, that it's the opposite of faith, although I don't believe that. Doubt actually isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief and indifference are the opposite of faith, not doubt. In fact, I believe doubt can be good. That's because doubt can be a part of clarifying and deepening our faith. Doubt is often a part of sort of spiritual growing pains. The truth is is that we all will live with at least some doubt because faith is a risk. One time Jesus encountered a man with a sick son and he asked the man to believe that he could heal him. And the man said, I do believe. Lord, help me in my unbelief, and that's the way many of us are. What we need to come to grips with is what one author calls the myth of certainty. That's because just because we don't have full certainty doesn't mean that we are stuck with blind faith. We can find something else that replaces that idea that we'll be fully certain, and that is confidence, confidence in God. You see, our faith is grounded, in fact. It's much more than wishful thinking, but you're never going to have every answer to every question that you might think of. Even if the certainty you're looking for doesn't exist, you can have confidence in what the Bible teaches us, that God, for one, is there. In fact, I think it's more difficult in many ways to believe that the world exists without the idea of God. Just consider for a moment the idea, the alternative. To reject God is to say that the natural world's all there is that our own existence is just an accident, that our presence here on earth is just a product of blind chance. And think about it. How does that make you feel, really? Does it feel good to believe that life is meaningless, that there's no overall purpose for our existence, that it's impossible to call anything good or bad? How satisfying is that, really? That's why the idea that that we are nothing more than sophisticated biological machines isn't satisfying. It's more comforting to know that things hold together, that they have meaning beyond the physical reality of our existence. Now, that doesn't mean per se that Christianity is true, but it does show us what our hearts are drawn to. And I'll just tell you that I believe because God is our creator, that's, that's what I believe, that He has planted those desires in us to connect, to find meaning and purpose, and those are things that God has, does to draw us to Him. And that alone may invite some of you to consider more seriously the Christian story. Now before we go further, I want to just give one caution because while it troubles me that some churches don't make room for people who doubt, I think there's an equally unhealthy counter-narrative, and that is those who celebrate even revel in doubt. We need to be careful and be aware of our motives or, said differently, of our passions because sometimes doubts can be a smokescreen for our own selfish desires. Most people realize that to actually put confidence or hope and and trust in a faith means that it's going to change our lives. It's going to make a difference in how we live. So sometimes people use doubt as a way of holding God at an arm's length because to do otherwise might ruin our weekend plans. That said, many do genuinely need evidence. They um, They do need understanding before making a commitment, and that is good. That's a good thing. Keep asking questions. And By the way, if we can be helpful, we'd love to. We've always wanted City Church to be a safe place for people to explore Christian faith. But also be careful about using doubt or skepticism as a way of keeping faith at an arm's length. Now, that's a really long introduction to the story that we're going to look at today about the most famous doubter in the Bible, man Thomas. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. It was on Easter Sunday evening, after Jesus had risen from the dead, the disciples had been in hiding behind a locked door since Friday night. Now that morning, some of the women had gone to the tomb, they had checked things out because they were there to prepare Jesus' body for burial, and they discovered that He wasn't there, and then He appeared to them. They rushed back to the disciples, told them the story. Peter and John, the only two disciples, left the room, went to the tomb and found that He was gone, although they didn't meet Jesus quite yet. So it's evening. And suddenly, John tells us this happened. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. So Jesus appears to the disciples, but not everyone is there. Someone was missing. So John tells us what happens next in John 20 verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples with Jesus. So when the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. So Thomas was a resurrection skeptic. As we said on Easter Sunday, that shouldn't surprise us. People in the ancient world weren't more gullible than we were. They know that dead people don't just get up from the dead, don't come back to life. So Thomas put down his foot and refused to believe unless he saw with his own two eyes, put his finger where the nails were, he said, "'I will not believe.'" So he's an honest skeptic. He refused to accept something unless he saw it for himself. And Jesus is patient with him. So a week later, Jesus shows up again, and he invites Thomas to, "'Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side.'" So Jesus is saying, "'Go ahead, touch me, satisfy your curiosity.'" But then he also says, "'Stop doubting and believe.'" Now interestingly, Thomas doesn't actually feel the need at that point to touch Jesus at all. Instead he says, my Lord and my God. So I think that Jesus is both patient as well as impatient with Thomas. He understands his need for answers, but he also challenges Thomas to a commitment. Stop doubting and believe. We shouldn't commit to faith carelessly or thoughtlessly, but it's also not something we should postpone. It's serious. But we also need to make a decision, not put it off. Now for Thomas, seeing Jesus was enough. He believed Jesus really rose from the dead and for him it was personal. He says, my Lord and my God. So as much as seeing Jesus met his intellectual need to know, his ultimate commitment was relational, a commitment to a person, a commitment to Jesus. You see, faith is not just rolling the dice, but it's also not absolute certainty. Over the years, I've come to see that faith is more than just assent or agreement with a set of religious ideas, but a relationship with the living God. So I care, for more, I care that my faith makes sense, that your faith makes sense, but I care even more about the relationship that I have with Jesus and the relationship I hope and trust that you do as well. So let's just say for a moment that you are one of those doubters, one of those reflective type, the 10, 15, 20, maybe more percent that, um, of you that are in that category. You may believe at least a little bit, although not with the certainty that you would like. So just let's reflect back on Thomas's experience. Jesus gave him some evidence, and that was really helpful, but he also offered him a relationship. Now, maybe you're not, still not sure. What do you do? Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, makes a suggestion. He said, rather than try to prove faith completely and then believe... He said, what if we turned that around and decided to trust and then live it out, to live as if Jesus did rise from the dead, as if he is God's son, as if we can trust him with our lives. In other words, make a commitment before we are completely sure of the outcome. Every once in a while, I have a conversation with somebody who's in that same predicament. Uh, They're unsure, they have lots of questions, but they also can't quite get Jesus out of their minds. And so the underlying sense they have is that God exists. They also aren't so sure about everything. What I will suggest to them is, why don't you try it out? See how it works. See what it's like to relate to God in a relationship with Jesus and give Christian faith a try and see what happens. Now, ultimately, we have to decide. We can't just sit on the fence. Faith isn't something that we inherit. It's not something someone else can do for us. We need to embrace it personally. And that will require a leap of faith. Now, before we go, I want to bring up a whole different category of doubts, because some of you are saying, my doubts don't really fall into those categories. Because some of you don't have a problem believing God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible's inspired. Your doubts are much more personal than the doubts that come from difficulty, the doubts that come from when you pray for something you need or want and nothing happens. Doubt that makes you ask, why does God seem to answer everyone else's prayers but mine? King David once felt this way. And in Psalm 13, he said this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? David is not someone who had given up on God, but he does feel abandoned. And he uses this poignant phrase. He says, I have sorrow in my heart. And some of you know exactly what that feels like. But David doesn't completely give up. There are many other Psalms where it talks about his confidence in God. In Psalm 131, another poet, probably not David, in similar circumstances tries to make sense of his experience. And in a memorable line in verse 2 of Psalm 131, he says this, "'I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content.'" Not to confess, for many years I completely misunderstood these words. This is not an infant, this is not a little baby crying loudly and demanding something from his mother. He's older now. He's a weaned child who sits at peace at his mother's side. Troubles haven't gone away, circumstances haven't changed. He doesn't have all the answers, but what he has found is that he can trust God. Will we ever have certainty? No, we won't. But we can have confidence, and that's why I think the words of Psalm 131 are so helpful. Let me read them in greater detail. First three verses of Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Then he says Israel, or we could say city church. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need to believe. Clear away the underbrush so that we can see the truth. But make us honest seekers. Keep us from being lazy. May we trust in what you've given us. May our doubts lead us toward a more mature faith. And may when we look at your son Jesus with Thomas say, my Lord and my God, amen.